When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. How long do you think we've got, Copilot, before we have a climate lockdown? Four. The sort of climate alarmism does seem to have been cranked up in order to try and convince us plebs to get back in our boxes. Tens of thousands of files are destroyed each year by government departments with no record being kept. I think Planet Normal listeners will have a fair idea of how we view (laughs) the outcome of the three by-elections. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. I feel there's something in the air co-pilot. No, I'm not talking about the Phil Collins Genesis classic, a soft rock reference that ages me. I'm talking about the political climate. And climate's the operative word because we're told, repeatedly, continental Europe's experiencing a historic heatwave, something you've described in your Telegraph column as climate catastrophism. And it's true that various media outlets have been working with the government's much-fabled nudge unit, to seemingly put the frighteners on us. Again. Then there's the scandal over Nigel Farage's bank account. The Brexit Supremo was, in quotes, exited from coots due to his political beliefs and not because he didn't have enough cash, as was widely reported. That's according to a lengthy internal dossier compiled by coots itself, extracted by Farage's legal team. Some of the ex-UKIP leaders' biggest political opponents agree this is bad form from coots. It's outrageous. Totally unacceptable, declared Tory cabinet minister Grant Shapps. Coots deny wrongdoing and say they're constrained from saying more due to client confidentiality. But it does seem, Alison, that many of the UK's top institutions are now dominated by a certain type of groupthink that rejects anyone as beyond the pale who doesn't have the most impeccable pro-environment, pro-trans, progressive views. Is that democratic? For now, at least, the Tories are facing a triple by-election challenge today, Thursday, as Planet Normal's released. The contests are in Selby and Ainstead, North Yorkshire, Tory majority just over 20,000. Somerton and Froome in the West Country, Tory majority just over 19,000. And Uxbridge and South Ryslip, Boris Johnson's former West London seat, with a 7,200 vote majority. Election law means we can mention these contests as the vote is happening now, Alison, but we can't say too much. No, that's right, Liam. I think Planet Normal listeners will have a fair idea of how we view 
<laughs> the outcome of the three by-elections. How much money have you put on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I'm not going to put on any money on anything. Yeah, the Prime Minister described midterm by-elections as always difficult. So the three results could have a certain impact, shall we say, and possibly a reshuffle at the end of this week or the beginning of next, Liam. I think that's right. I've been talking to senior Tories throughout this week so far. They do think there's some kind of political moving of the furniture coming down the track. I think there's something in what the Tories say. Midterm by-elections always are very, very difficult. It's very odd that three have come along all at once. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. We are constrained, aren't we? As we know as, as seasoned journalists, there is the representation of the People's Act. It does limit what we can say in any broadcast as the polls are open in any elections. Just a couple of minutes in to this podcast and you've already made a huge mistake, co-pilot. Another one. Because you have referred to a heat wave. Now, you know, get with the plot because it's now called a heat storm (laughs) because heat wave... How's that going to happen? A heat wave, a tropical heat wave. The heat wave is deemed insufficiently terrifying. So now we are dealing... (laughs) with a heat storm and Planet Normal listeners will of course have noticed that there's been a drastic change to our weather maps. <laughs> Previously a soothing shade of green with little shy suns peering out from behind a rain cloud and, and now we've got these lurid oranges and scarlets and even black and purple. We've got a fantastic email on that subject later but Yes, Liam, I mean, something I focused on this week in my Telegraph column is climate catastrophism has gone completely berserk. Last week, Europe was said to be burning in the hellish heat of Cerberus, the three-headed Scooby-Doo dog. No, Cerberus. (laughs) And this week, it's Sharon, not Sharon, Sharon, who, of course, was the boatman. (laughs) Now, Sharon was last week, you know, the Commonwealth champion. last week, yes, exactly. (laughs) Actually, uh, heatwave Sharon Davis would be fine. That sounds like the name of a sort of funk tribute band. (laughs) Big hair and and wide shoulders. (laughs) But all these big, scary, mythological figures are, are being attached to some rather warm weather across southern Europe. And and we've seen lots of hysterical chappies on the TV news flapping their arms in foreign capitals, which they claim, Liam, are seeing unprecedented high temperatures, unless, of course, you count all the previous years when Seville went over 42 degrees and southern Spain was indeed very, very hot. Now, I spotted, I think some keen-eyed listeners may also have spotted, the BBC did one report where they were featuring a wildfire in La Palma, which, of course, was attributed to climate change. Actual local people living in La Palma pointed out that the temperature in La Palma at the moment has been in the 20s and is forecast to remain below 30, actually very cool for the time of the year. And a Telegraph reader who lives there emailed to tell us that the wildfire was caused by a portable barbecue, (laughs) but no mention of that in the news. And, of course, there are the matching apocalyptic headlines. Will people cancel their holidays because of the truly terrifying conditions, as Sky News called them? As most of us here in the UK are basking in 14 degrees in the drizzle, we are very much... I speak for myself here, not cancelling our sunshine holiday. It's all gone a bit mad, Liam, and it does, as I concluded in my column, it does all feel somewhat coordinated, doesn't it? 
It does seem a bit mad. We've been reading in recent days about, as I say, the much-fabled nudge unit working with television stations, banging this climate drum. Look, you and I talk about this a lot on Planet Normal. I do think the debate is shifting a bit. I do think people who completely recognise we need to move gradually away from fossil fuels, there's a lot of benefit from renewables and so on down the track. But there is now a real debate about the cost to it, the distribution of that cost, the pace at which we move, the trade-offs about getting rid of all petrol and diesel cars being bought new from 2030. Is that really the right way to go, given that the European Union has shifted their deadline to 2035 and so on? There is now a sensible debate that goes beyond sort of blind adherence to everything that we've done for the last 200 years must be scrapped and changed in the next five minutes, which of course has massive economic implications, not least for you know the less well-off in society. And as this debate has developed, and as some of the things that we've been saying have started to become you know, not outlandish, but actually increasingly respectable and mainstream, the sort of climate alarmism does seem to have been cranked up in order mm. to try and convince us plebs to get back in our boxes and carry on aligning ourselves with the conventional wisdom that's handed out de or en bas. And as so often, the great British public responds to this kind of preaching from the pulpits with humour. There's an incredibly funny map going around on Twitter, which you shared with me. And it's, yeah. it's a map of Europe. And it, it is really <laughs> fond, but really funny. The map of Europe, and it's all about what we're doing this summer. And across the UK, it says slamming pints with the lads across sort of northwestern France and Belgium and Holland. It's chilling in the sun. And then there's a sort of line across Europe. Uh, northern Spain is surfing. The majority of Spain, eternal siesta, Italy yeah. obliterated. You know, the, <laughs> the whole of sort of southern Europe down to the the northern Med gone. You know, central Europe <laughs> dead. Northern Africa vaporized. There's a little kind of all that is in sort of red, turning scarlet, as you say. And there's a little kind mm. of oasis in the middle that's sort of Switzerland and Austria hiking. <laughs> It is crazy, though. Well, Liam, it is. You know, we're, we're laughing and that map is very, very funny. But I'm afraid I do think it's pretty sinister stuff. We've got this nudge unit, the beha- so-called behavioural insights team, which did work out of the cabinet office, has now gone independent. They were the bunch who were responsible for enforcing the COVID rules, some of the most absurd lockdown rules, scaring the pants of the population, very brilliantly documented, of course, in Laura Dodsworth's book, State of Fear. Now, the people behind the current climate alarmism do seem to be exactly this same bunch. And as you say, working with broadcasters to create fear about climate change and ultimately perhaps drive public acceptance of measures that were going to make us all poorer and colder. Now, there's this document, which I think is very chilling, actually, called The Power of TV, Nudging Viewers to Decarbonise Their Lifestyles, which says that behavioural change on climate can be driven by TV using behavioural science techniques, Sky, television station, of course, and the uh, behavioural insights team set out new behavioural science principles to guide broadcasters on helping their viewers to take action. And they continue, it comes at a critical time as experts now widely accept that we must shift the behaviour of millions of people to deliver our collective net zero goals. 
whose collective goals are these, Liam? Which experts? Why, once again, having seen the mass folly of lockdown, we're still paying the price for that. Tens of thousands of excess deaths, a seven and a half million long uh, hospital waiting list. And the same idiots who frightened the British people into that are now saying, oh, no questioning of the science again, no questioning of the marvellous models on which we're basing this. And I think a period of embarrassed silence from the nudge unit would be in order. But once again, we seem to be plunging back into coordinated groupthink. How long do you think we've got, Co-Pilot, before we have a climate lockdown? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to be completely eviscerated before the summer's out. I've got my trusty bottle of Timothy White sun cream at the ready (laughs) for my bluey whiteness Irish skin, but it's not going to do me any good. I know you've moved on to, what is it? Hawaiian Tropic. Hawaiian Tropic, crikey. (laughs) No expense spared in Pearson Towers when it comes to products that you're squirting onto your body (laughs) three for two in the excellent boots while there's still a branch open near you (laughs) the boots bargain bucket (laughs) come on you know i know you're laughing but look are we heading for some sort of chinese style credit system this all is actually very very worrying we shouldn't have broadcasters employing these people. The nudge unit was once part of government in the cabinet office, and it still has close connections with government. So what is the government doing working closely with these people who are trying to guide public behaviour? I mean, I strongly suspect that the absolutely ludicrous weather maps. If you look, Liam, from previous years, you'll see exactly the same temperatures on the maps for the different countries. But one lot has got in the old colours, the sort of yellows and the temperate greens. And this year's map is suddenly in the kind of, you know, homicidal pizza colours. I mean, they're probably being told to do this. Actually, I've just got this here. Orange is now being used for just 20 degrees and lower, and deep purple is being used for a hardly dangerous 33 degrees. And another ruse, which listeners have put me onto, is they are using land temperatures, which are significantly warmer than air temperatures, on sunny days. And we've even had our foreign office weighing in, updating the Greece and Spain sections of its website, adding an unprecedented extreme weather section, detailing how to stay safe during the heat storm, have a siesta, wear a hat, buy an ice lolly. You've got Genesis, you've got deep purple, you've got the three <laughs> degrees, you've got Greece. I mean, I know I know, we're still locked into the 70s. And the <laughs> Summer nights. It does take us back to lockdown, doesn't it? You and I were warning Planet Normal listeners that there was something really weird going on. The political class was closing ranks. There seemed to be an imposed groupthink that we did our best and the Telegraph backed us to just challenge, challenge, challenge within the acceptable rules of the time. And then when Matt Hancock's WhatsApps were outed by Isabel Oakeshott, there it was. Ministers, cabinet ministers talking about scaring the bejesus out of the public and something similar is happening. And it is sinister. And sinister, by the way, was the word used by Home Secretary Swella Braverman when she heard about Nigel Farage's bank account being closed by Coots and why it was closed. Now, I think this is about so much more than Nigel Farage, whatever you may think of him, because... Mm. 
coots, this very you know posh bank for royalty and other extremely well-off people, it told the world, or at least it told the BBC through the side of its mouth and the FT, that the reason Nigel Farage was told he had to leave Coots, forced out of the bank, where he's banked for many years, was because he didn't have enough money, right? Which it seems that is a weird breach of personal data yes. rules and so on. And it turns out Farage's lawyers have got hold of an internal dossier put together by Coots. It wasn't the minutes of a meeting, which the BBC said it was. It's an internal dossier. I've read the whole thing. It's 40 pages long. It's basically a hit document that Coots have put together. And it can only be described as that if you actually read it, which I have. And the Telegraph's reported on it. And the whole thing is now available on Nigel Farage's Twitter feed and on newspaper websites. It's a whole list of reasons why Coots wants to get rid of Farage. It mentions Russia many times, Brexit many times, Donald Trump many times. Bizarrely, it mentions Farage's friendship with Novak Djokovic, who, when I last looked, was probably the greatest tennis player in the men's circuit of all time, even though I'm a huge Roger Federer fan, of course, and I'll always hold a candle for Beyond Borg. But anyway, it's absolutely clear from this dossier that it's political. Why they're getting rid of him, it's political. And even Farage's biggest political rivals, Grant Shapps, blimey, a senior cabinet minister, he spent his whole life winding up the Tories, Nigel Farage. They detest him. Yet Grant Shapps says, I hold no candle for Nigel Farage, but this is, quotes, absolutely outrageous behaviour and completely unacceptable. That's what Grant Shapps said. Even the Prime Minister at the dispatch box at the House of Commons has called out coots. Yeah, Shapps said very well, absolutely fundamentally against democracy. I thought this document was really deeply shocking. Yeah. Blithely, you know, saying Farage is seen as xenophobic and racist, a disingenuous grifter. You know, I've got friends who have worked at Coots and I have to say they are privately deeply shocked. And I don't think we'll be surprising listeners, Liam, if if we were to suggest that Coots and other distinguished banks might have uh, clients, very wealthy clients, who are a lot more unsavoury than Nigel Farage. People who probably had people's hands chopped off, or do they not fall in the remit of diversity and inclusion? And I think what we're seeing actually is this is across not just in banking, but Suella Braverman said, and I agree, that Suella Braverman blaming the diversity, equality and inclusion industry for the bank's decision. And basically, Coote said Farage's views were at odds with our position. With our values and purpose. As an inclusive organisation. You're a bank. You're not in some high moral pulpit. What is this? A purge by the morality police. And if it is, where does it end up? And I'll tell you where it ends up, Liam, is people like us daring just to suggest we're not, I'm not particularly a climate sceptic as such. I just, I'm a net zero sceptic. I don't want my country having pissed 400 billion up the wall on COVID lockdown to go and shoot itself in the head with a net zero target, which isn't going to be implemented by any of our international competition. Are we then threatened with having our banking arrangements cut off, which would put you at not even a grave disadvantage. It would basically destroy your life. Especially as cash is withdrawn from society. A bank account's absolutely key. This issue with Nigel, and look, there will be hearings in the House of Commons about this. I do think 
Uh, and I say this with no pleasure, I do think there will be some kind of legal action as well that's taken by some of the key players in this. But more broadly, Alison, there are two million people in this country who can't get a bank account at all because they haven't, they're seen as not you know, commercially interesting enough. We're not very good at giving out banking licenses in this country. You've got a lot of new disruptor banks that are trying to challenge the so-called high street thoroughbreds, though now they're the non-high street thoroughbreds because they're closing branches everywhere. Their banking licenses are basically licenses to print money. And a banking license should come with what's called a universal service obligation. You have to give people a bank account unless there's a really, really good reason why you can't give them a bank account. Not making some kind of judgment about whether they're wealthy or not, and certainly not making any kind of judgment about their views, provided their views are lawful, which, of course, Nigel Farage's views are. The the bloke's the only person in British history to have won two national elections with different parties. Again, whatever you think of him, he is a legitimate democratic figure. Just because Coots don't like the cut of his jib, they can't cancel him. And that is clearly, according to this internal document, which they produced and which was clawed from them by Farage's lawyers, that's clearly what they did. Well, you were quoting to me last night, weren't you, with incredulity? Is it Dame Alison Rose who runs Coots in her opening statement on appointment, basically saying, you know, the biggest sort of opportunity and challenge of her job was net zero. And you think, You're a banker, love. Look after people's pounds. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. Put simply, she said, when she was appointed to this 40% government-owned organisation, an organisation because of the stupidity and greed of the senior executives. That was of NatWest, wasn't it? Ordinary taxpayers had to bail out. Yeah, she's the chief executive of NatWest. She said, put simply, when she became CEO, tackling the climate emergency is one of, if not the biggest issue of our time. She's fully entitled to say that. Then, as banks, we have a massive role to play in mobilising the power of finance to meet the net zero ambition. No, you don't. You're a bank. You're not democratically elected people. She said she was going to make tackling climate change a central pillar of her leadership. How about a return to the shareholders, which is actually your legal obligation to try and make a return for your shareholders? We've talked about these. I think there are various threads running through what we're talking about this week because we've also seen something you and I have been very exercised about was the the situation with aggressive transgender promotion within our schools. Now, I'd written in my column this week chastising the government for there's been a leak of the new transgender guidance which has been delayed and I was chastising them saying, look, don't make this some horrible, shoddy, weak compromise. Let's ban self-ID in schools. That's supported by lots of people who are experts in this field, including uh, Miriam Cates, the terrific Tory MP. We shouldn't have kids being able to just suddenly say, you're going to call me he today, or I'm going to accuse you of misgendering me to their school teachers. But then there was a story this week, the Times had a splash, Liam, which really took me aback because it said that Sunak was expecting to delay this new transgender guidance for schools because the Attorney General and government lawyers had warned that plans to strengthen it would be unlawful 
under the Equality Act. Now, we actually now have a situation, and it's very relevant, actually, to the kind of people who are the sort of leftist climate change mentality, which is taking over, dominating our institutions and representing a minority opinion, not a majority opinion. So we may now have in government Kemi Badenoch, the Women and Equalities Minister, wanting the guidance in schools. Now, if you think about this, Liam, you cannot buy cigarettes or alcohol until you are 18 in this country. But we are seriously allowing primary school children, saying that they're old enough to make life-changing decisions about their gender. This is absolutely insane. And yet there is clearly within the legal establishment, within the government, within certain departments, people who don't want a ban on this thing, which I am absolutely confident, I'll say this now, this will be seen as a vast historic error. You wait for 30 years time, we will have class legal actions from young people who have embarked on gender transition when they probably were just gay or a bit confused. That's literally what we're doing now. And the government, the advice that we've had leaked, says that, yes, parents must be told if Jessica is calling herself Jimmy at school, but any child who does want to self-identify should first undergo a period of reflection. What is a period of reflection. What good is that going to do against a cult that is aggressively grooming children via PSHE lessons? It's just utterly astonishing. And I suppose really what all of this comes together to say is that we are actually having censorship. We are having views held by millions of people, whether it's supporters of Nigel Farage, whether it's parents who don't want their children to be allowed to become a member of the opposite sex during school. These views are being effectively outlawed by a tiny number of people who are now dominating the national debate. Women's football, Euro final, England versus Germany, Wembley, sold out stadium, and then to go on and win it. It was just insane. A lot of the chatter afterwards was, I really hope it's not the ACL, I hope it's everything else. I'd worked in the Olympic and Paralympic system for a number of years. No one had ever said the word periods, no one had talked about menstrual cycles. I've totally subscribed to best person for the job, but often the best person for the job could well be female, but society isn't ready for that yet. All I'm saying is that everybody should know how to swim. I can't fathom how you can try and say that that is troublemaking or anything like that. Every time I hear somebody talk about investing in women's sport and talking about it as if it's some sort of donation (laughs) or like charity. (laughs) You're welcome. It's just such a weird way to tell me that you're bad at business. The Telegraph Women's Sport Podcast with me, Sam Quek. Follow now so you don't miss an episode. Andrew Lowney is an award-winning historian and noted literary agent. His critically acclaimed books include Stalin's Englishman, The Lives of Guy Burgess, Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and he's currently working on a biography of Prince Andrew. I decided to invite Andrew aboard the rocket after reading his superb 2019 book, The Mountbattens, Their Loves and Lives, a dual biography of Louis Mountbatten and his wife Edwina. 
Mountbatten was, of course, uncle to Prince Philip, close confidant of Prince Charles during his younger years, and the last Viceroy of India, overseeing independence and then partition in the late 1940s. He later played a key role in the D-Day landings before serving as Chief of Defence Staff. His wife, a world-famous heiress, was known for her numerous romantic liaisons as well as her extensive path-breaking charity work. Lowney's books combine serious historical scholarship, often with a nose for delicious scandal. As a trustee of the Campaign for Freedom of Information, he has fought numerous battles with the Cabinet Office and other official bodies to secure the timely release of historical documents of public interest. As such, he struck me as a natural citizen of Planet Normal. I started by quizzing Andrew Lowney on one particular claim that he makes about Louis Mountbatten. Was he really the second most significant British person of the 20th century after Winston Churchill? Well, certainly his funeral was on the same sort of level as Churchill. And if we think about it, he was the last link with Queen Victoria. He was the last godchild and the last great-grandchild. He'd been mentor to not just George VI and the Queen, but also to Charles. He'd been the last Viceroy of India, Chief of Defence Staff, a supreme Allied commander in Southeast Asia. I mean, he was a figure, as you say, that bestrode the 20th century. And of course, we had the great sort of spectacular murder in 1979. Indeed. He was a close friend, of course, of Edward VIII, who then abdicated, of Noel Coward. He joined the Royal Navy in World War I. He became Combined Operations Commander during World War II. I learned so much on every page about a figure who I thought I knew rather well. I had no idea he was so involved with the Mulberry ports for the D-Day landings and also something that we call Pluto. Can you explain to listeners? Well, Pluto was pipeline under the ocean, and this was a way, of course, of servicing the, the ships when they got across the channel. But he was very good at thinking outside the box. He, he was probably the most technically proficient of all the naval officers of his generation. He you know, started as a signaller. And it was an inspired appointment by Churchill to put him in there as combined operations because he was very good at bringing in maverick figures. And so they, you know, would send people across to test the soil for the beach landings. Um, they had these mulberry harbours, artificial harbours that were towed across and allowed them to create their own port. That was always the great worry at D-Day, how they were able to service all the troops when everything would have been destroyed. And so though we often think of Estabrook's combined operations as being the great tragedy of Dieppe, where you know hundreds of Canadian troops were killed in a complete cock-up, I, I think his legacy is very much with, with D-Day. But because he wasn't there for D-Day, he'd been sent across to Southeast Asia, he tends to be written out of the script there. I learned about Edwina, who I'd never read about before. She was, of course, goddaughter to Edward VII. She was named after Edward VII, one of the richest heiresses in the world. Their marriage between Mountbatten and Edwina, a huge society event, but also event that was covered extensively in the newspapers. Why were they better together rather than apart, even though clearly cheating each other, playing away from home almost the whole time? Well, they got married in July 1922. 8,000 people on a rainy day came to see the wedding in, in St. Margaret's and Parliament Square. There were special editions of the Times, and indeed you can watch the wedding on Pathé News. And this was because they were the sort of it couple of their day. As you say, the probably the wealthiest heiress in the world at the time with this uh, member of the royal family, a very good-looking couple. 
And in some ways, they were very honest with her in their marriage, because though she began to play away very quickly, she had about 17 lovers in their marriage. And he came close to divorcing her several times. They were quite, She was quite open about it. And they came to the conclusion that they would both be allowed to play away, as long as it didn't scare the horses and the royal family. And certainly they had a very good public partnership. And one of the reasons he was appointed as Viceroy was because of Edwina. And Edwina, in many ways, is a surprise to me. There is little written about her. Many of her papers still remain closed. But she becomes this, in the course of the book, this fantastic humanitarian. And it's hard to find anyone who says a harsh word against her. And sadly, she died in her 50s. So, you know, who knows what might have happened. She had some affairs that were incredibly glamorous and even geostrategically important. Paul Robeson and Leslie Hutch, the black actors and pianist singers, huge figures in their day. Significantly, also, she had affairs with Nehru, the Prime Minister of India, at the time of independence. Her husband was, of course, the last Viceroy of India, and at the time of partition, an affair that seemed to put Jinnah's nose out of joint. The fact that Nehru was a Harovian and seemed to have got together with the Viceroy's wife, it seemed to complicate the very delicate politics of that partition. Yes, I mean, they both had affairs with remarkable people. I mean, she just had an affair at that point with the composer Malcolm Sargent. And he was having an affair with a woman called Janie Lindsay, whose two suitors had been J.F. Kennedy and David Niven. But as you say, the most important relationship is Nehru. It lasts really to the end of her life, begins almost immediately when she arrives in India in 1947. And as you say, it's been a subject of great speculation. There's been a suggestion that it was platonic, it wasn't consummated, if it was sexual until after independence. My own view is that it began more or less as soon as she arrived. It was sexual, it was romantic, it was very profound for her, and of course very profound for international relations, because the perception was that the Viceroy was not totally independent, a great deal of suspicion uh, on the Muslim side, particularly from Jinnah. And when we now look at, for example, partition and how that was done, there is a suggestion that pressure was put on Mountbatten, partly through Nehru. And Nehru, of course, was given early sight of the plans for independence way before um, uh, Jinnah, and that really wasn't fair. I think one of the great sadnesses is that the correspondence between Nehru and Edwina remains closed, even though it was bought with public funds to be open over a decade ago. And I think that would, if it was released, and I continue to campaign for its release, would, I think, shed a lot of light on Indian independence. But the view is that somehow this might affect Anglo-Indian relations, which is ridiculous. Your admiration, I think, certainly for the significance of this couple, if not always for their characters, shines through. Certainly, you'd differ, wouldn't you, from Andrew Roberts, another distinguished historian who described Mountbatten as mendacious, intellectually limited, promoted wildly above his abilities with consistently disastrous consequences. That's not your view, is it? No, no, my view is slightly more nuanced. And in fact, I feel he's taken quite a lot of the blame for things like Dieppe and India, which he shouldn't have done. Uh, you know, Andrew's essay is, is very good, and but it's a polemic. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a mixture of both. They were very entitled, rich uh, people, but they also worked extremely hard, had a very strong sense of public service, uh, and I think have a great number of achievements to their credit. And so it's very easy to dismiss them as just as, both of them as sort of playboy and playgirl. They were quite rightly um, revered in their own lifetimes. The reputation has certainly for him has changed 
as uh, certain disclosures have, have come out, I think most notably in, in from my own book where I had access to FBI files and began to talk to people who had never spoken before about the dark secret of his double life. Indeed, his sexuality, his proclivity. Let's spool forward, if we may, from Indian partition through the 50s and 60s. Mountbatten was first sea lord. He was chief of defence staff. He became NATO commander in the Mediterranean. Very distinguished. He also, didn't he, had a huge impact on the life of a young Prince Charles as Prince Philip's uncle on his maternal side, as somebody who really engineered that royal marriage. He was, as we say, right in there with the key royals. Yes, over a long period of time. I mean, he was a fixer. He fixed, in some ways, for his nephew Philip to be introduced to the young Princess Elizabeth. He pushed that relationship along, this correspondence from five or six years before they got married with George VI about the two of them trying to push the couple together. And though it was a love match, it was certainly engineered. He was the man who gave Philip his surname, Mountbatten, which of course has now been passed on to the royal family. He pushed his own granddaughter, Amanda, as a possible uh, wife for Charles. And because Philip was busy and in some ways a very different character to Charles, Charles looked up to Mountbatten, who by the mid-60s was retired, had more time. And so, for example, when Charles graduated from Dartmouth, it was Dickie who went to, to the, the graduation. He gave him a room in his house in Hampshire Broadlands where he could entertain girlfriends in privacy. He saw himself as someone who could shape you know, the future monarch. And Charles was absolutely devastated when Mountbatten died in 79. Indeed, there are suggestions that if Mountbatten had been alive, he would never have married Diana, for example, and history would have been very different. Another kind of famous episode that's just on the edge of public consciousness, which I learned more about from your fantastic book, was the idea of a very British coup when Mountbatten was seen to be plotting with various people to get rid of a Wilson government. I think you show in your book pretty definitively that Mountbatten, he was at a certain meeting, but he pretty quickly dismissed himself and called it out as not something that he wanted to be associated with. Is that now the settled view among respectable historians? Well, I think the line has always been that he excused himself pretty quickly. And, you know, of course, it would be ridiculous. He was a great supporter of the monarchy. And the idea of this sort of coup against the established government is not something that anyone thinks he would have taken seriously. But Having said that, this was a sort of government of all the talents. It was a mixture, it was sort of a national government rather than a coup that he was talking about. He did put forward candidates. He did have more meetings than have been recorded. Uh, and again, what is interesting, when you triangulate the correspondence from some of the, the individuals, particularly uh, the journalist Steve uh, Cecil King, you do get a sense that, there, that he was flattered by these approaches and that it went a little bit further than he, he said. We also have to remember that there were, in fact, two coups. There was a 68, which was this government of all the talents. And then in 74, there was Peter Wright's attempt with intelligence MI5 officers to mount a coup. And this was the sort of machine guns at street corners that Marcia Faulkner talked about. But certainly, Batten had always felt uh, frustrated that, as a member of the royal family, he couldn't stand for public office and always felt that he could do a better job. And he was very worried in 68 with the sort of economic and industrial unrest and wanted to, to see what he could do to, to change things. The Crown clearly have one version, which is not entirely accurate. 
But I think since my book's come out, we've slightly recalibrated it. Um, he's still not a great plotter, but he's slightly more involved than he perhaps would let on. And indeed, we've seen correspondence where he says that as they try and get their stories straight for posterity. I also learned a huge amount from your chapter on Ireland. Classy Bourne was, of course, the holiday home of the Mountbatten's, inherited, I believe, from Edwina's side. He was assassinated in August of 1979 on his boat Shadow 5. And from what you say, Andrew, and document meticulously, and from people you spoke to, this could easily have been avoided if warnings had been heeded. Yes, it's extraordinary. The royal family were not meant to go to Ireland. He ignored that advice. In 79, of course, we had the assassination of Ari Neve. He was warned by Metropolitan Police here and others not to go, that it was very dangerous. He ignored that advice and went. And even though there was an enhanced security threat, his security was reduced. The previous year, they had, in fact, had found an attempt to put a bomb on Shadow 5, which was moored in the harbour. But for the first time ever, Shadow 5 wasn't being guarded. So it was very easy for anyone to to put a bomb on Shadow 5, which is what happened. But the other extraordinary thing was I interviewed a man called Graham Yule, who was a military policeman, a security audit uh, in July of 79. He identified some of the vulnerabilities, like the boat, and yet that report was never acted on. He was sent immediately to Hong Kong. All the files on Mountbatten's um, death remain closed, the Garda claimed that it's an active investigation, even though someone has actually served a sentence for it and came out under the Good Friday Agreement. One has to wonder, why was the security reduced? He was never very keen on having too much protection. It kind of hampered his movements. The Irish like me, you quoted him as saying. The Irish like me. Not all of them. <laughs> but he actually did offer himself as an intermediary, didn't he, between the British establishment and, and the Republicans. It wasn't an offer lacking in credibility, even though the head of Sinn Féin at the time rejected it. Yes, no, he was certainly, I mean, he was a great believer in trying to bring people together, had a thing called the Hive, and he certainly offered himself forward. Again, a lot of those papers are closed, but I've seen some of them. The thing was, he was quite a controversial figure because apart from his sexuality, which he was being much more open about by this time, he, for example, had made a famous speech in May 79 against nuclear weapons. He was seen to be quite a controversial character. And so there are all sorts of theories about who actually killed him, whether it was the IRA who claimed credit for it or some sort of rogue operation by other terrorists or indeed something else completely separate. I must say, Andrew, if I may, even though you are a writer who really gets news and you've got an eye for a story, your books are extremely scholarly, extremely well-sourced, and you are spearheading, aren't you, attempts to unlock a lot of these raw papers. This collection of diaries and letters between Mountbatten and Edwina, it is the second most important private collection after Churchill. You want to see them. They're held at Southampton University, close to Broadlands, the Mountbatten's country house in Hampshire, as you say. Millions of pounds of public money was spent getting them to Southampton. And yet, while a lot of them have been released, you still feel that there should be more to come. Well, what's closed are the personal diaries of Edwina and Dickie going back to the 1920s and the correspondence between the couple. Everything else is, is, has been opened. Now, these diaries and letters have been quoted in other biographies before I came along in 2015 when I started researching the book. So surprised to, to be told that they were closed, particularly since, as you say, 
not just £2.8 million of public money had been spent buying it, but probably another £2 million of acceptance and loo tax had been forfeited to buy these diaries and letters, freely sold by the family. They'd gone to university in the States. They'd been open a decade ago. Eventually, after various FOI requests and the intervention of the Information Commissioner, they ruled that they should be released. Southampton University and the Cabinet Office had somehow muscled their way in on the grounds that there'd been a ministerial direction for these to be closed, which they were never able to provide uh, and show, then appealed this. It was taken to a hearing two years later in November 21. On the eve of the hearing, 33,000 pages, the biggest ever release of FOI material, was dumped on the internet. All proved to be completely innocent. This has all been a, a storm in a teacup but it had cost me half a million pounds in legal fees. Most of it challenging this Section 44, the ministerial direction which they dropped, and which we now discover, having seen the purchase agreement unredacted, which they kept from us, showed that these diaries were always open and should never have been closed in the first place. And so I feel very cross about that. And it's all part of, I say, uh, a sort of culture of secrecy that goes on and keeps many files closed. Tens of thousands of files are destroyed each year by government departments with no record being kept. We're seeing files that have been open for 20 years being reclosed. We see documents which should be in the National Archives after 20 years not there. I'm a great believer that if we're to tell the story of our, our, our history properly, we have to have access to the documents, not just the ones the government chooses to show us. So it's been a great campaign for me. Other historians, I hope, will now follow suit and, and relate their own stories. The Royal Archives are particularly bad. They have no public catalogue. It's like going to a restaurant with no menu. And my own feeling is that, you know, keep the important secret secret and we'll trust that. But then open the, up the others that the royal family who we pay for, you know, are, should be open to scrutiny about what they do, particularly when they're on government business and being paid for from public funds. Andrew Lowney, journalist, author, scholar. Thanks for appearing on Planet Normal. Thank you. Well, there you have it, Alice. And Andrew Lowney's 2019 book, The Mount Battens, Their Lives and Loves, released by Blink Publishing, is available in all good bookshops. A rip-roaring reader is too. If I had to sum it up in <laughs> five words, it would be Love Island for posh people. <laughs> and I have to say, Mountbatten, he has been this kind of presence in my life, and there's a very personal reason for that. He was, of course, assassinated in County Sligo, that that summer when he was assassinated, August 1979, I spent most of that summer in the adjacent county of Mayo, where my father mm. grew up. And it was one of the most formative political experiences of my life. I was 10 years old, being in the pubs and bars of County Mayo as the news of the assassination came through, and then coming home to London and watching the BBC News subsequently and the complete difference in spin and angle and approach of the various commentaries. It was the moment where I first began to really understand what news is. And it's probably the first step that I made on the road to becoming a journalist was watching and trying to sort of rationalise the mm. reasons behind the differences in the coverage and what people were saying about the same tragic event. That's fascinating, Liam. Andrew Lowney, I'm certainly taking his extraordinary book to my Turkish sunlander in about 10 days. 
It jogged my memory that I had met Lord Mountbatten, believe it or not. I was one of the first intake to the Mountbatten School, Romsey, which at that time was the largest comprehensive in the country, probably the second or third year going in. I think it was founded in 1969, and Lord Mountbatten could have given some of his lands from his estate of Broadlands to an inter-private school, an independent school, but he chose to give it to a state secondary school and his influence ran through the school, Liam. I mean, we had all the houses in the school were called after Royal Navy ships that he'd had a connection with. So I was in Kelly House, but there was illustrious Lion, Wishart, etc. Very impressionable, slightly nervous 12-year-old, I think, went, uh, won a prize, I think, for academic, highest academic achievement of the year and was invited to Broadlands to have tea with Lord Mountbatten, which is a very Crikey. nervous, specky little girl, made a huge impression. And his crest was on our blazers, on Iswaki Mali Ponce. And I believe that Romsey Abbey every year, kids from the school go along to still honour his memory. So that was a huge contribution he made to children like me from much less fortunate backgrounds. So we have both have a link to him, Liam. He had he had a this extraordinary and controversial figure had an impact on both our very young lives. And of course, he died not that long after, was murdered, in fact, not long after I met him. I remember thinking he was in, incredibly handsome and the drawing room where we had tea was bigger than our entire house, but certainly lingers in the memory. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Alison loves to read them and rip them off for her columns. <laughs> I haven't done that one for a while. After all these years, immature poets borrow, mature poets steal. That's what T.S. Eliot said. Come on, get on with the emails. Get on with it. <laughs> right, we've had enormous reaction, of course, to the climate change alarmism. Listeners all around Europe and indeed around the world sending in some fascinating facts about what the weather is actually doing rather than what the BBC and Sky News are claiming. David says the media are all in lockstep on this issue, all going completely mental. Even people who usually swallow this kind of propaganda hook, line and sinker are noticing. Do our ruling classes think they can implement a climate lockdown? Would love them to try. It would be the last of their political lives. And Muffin says, best friend is in Spain at her home she's had for 30 years. She says it's no different than every July. My entire family is in the deep south in the US where I was raised and it's now covered in black on the weather maps. And they're saying it's no different than every July. BBC Sky, ITV have all been caught fibbing about the actual temperatures by simple Google searches and by people who are actually in the locations in question. So call them out for it every single chance you get. Dr. Martin, so we've got so many of these, Liam, just quickly. Dr. Martin says, Alison, better be careful. Her bank doesn't close her account because she suggests that the high temperatures across the Med is merely weather. 
30 years ago, I drove back from a holiday in Tuscany in a car with no air conditioning when the temperature across the continental Europe was 42 degrees. There was no alarmist jargonese from the media in those days, except maybe few what a scorcher. <laughs> you like this, Liam. Firstly, from Lawrence and then from Clive. Lawrence says, we live in Central America and we're having an unusually cool and pleasant July. Temperatures between 25 and 30 degrees instead of the normal 35 to 40 degrees where we live. Yet the BBC weather maps portray us as deep purple. And Clive says, nothing wrong with deep purple. Smoke on water. One of the greatest <laughs> rock bands ever. <laughs> Pity the BBC doesn't play one of deep purple's records instead of putting on fake weather forecasts. Well done, Lawrence <laughs> and Clive. This is from Roger. You should follow the observation on the media's manipulation of La Palma footage with a piece on the Canadian wildfire season. Clearly exaggerated. Canada always has a wildfire season. And what's the real evidence that the first week in July was the hottest that the world has ever seen? It's UN propaganda, says Roger. July is a hot month, just like, as you say, Cyprus has hot summers. NASA says Greenland lost an average of 279 billion tonnes of ice per year between 1993 and 2019. Why should we believe that? Like you, I shall not be manipulated into changing my behaviour by climate science and dubious juxtapositions, you can be sure. Alison, do enjoy your Turkish beach. And this is from Paul. Hello, Planet Normal. I look after my 20-month-old son in the mornings while my wife goes off to work. So I have the pleasure of sharing breakfast with him every day. His name's Noah, which, somewhat ironically, given his distaste for going to sleep, means rest. <laughs> his middle name is Jude, after the New Testament writer who stood up against false teachings, chosen partly for the times we find ourselves in. On Thursday mornings, I listen to Planet Normal at the breakfast table. Noah's just beginning to talk, and I'm sure you'll be very pleased to hear that this Tuesday he said Planet Normal as we sat down to eat. <laughs> we get them on the rocket young in this household, it seems. I told him he had to be patient and wait until Thursday. Keep up the good work, Paul. Also, please tell Liam, I'm being told, that he's inspired me to follow an MIT open courseware introduction to microeconomics lecture series on YouTube. <laughs> well, all I can say, Paul is you should get out more. <laughs> Good luck with it. Hello, Noah. Hello, Noah. <laughs> hello, it's Planet Normal. Say hello to Daddy from Alison and Liam. This from Verna. I listened to the Sharon Davis interview and cheered at her successes. And I went out and bought her book. That was in last week's Planet Normal, of course. I then read about the UCI decision to make women's cycling for women. Hurrah again. However, the response from a trans rider made my blood boil as it referred to genocide and trans children feeling not welcome on the planet. No one's talking about killing people, that's the definition of genocide, or expecting people to, quote, leave the planet. The fulfilment demanded can only be granted at the expense of others and with much greater impact. Consider all the women that feel there's no point in taking part because biological men are able to operate in women's competitive events. There are many children who'd like to be a sporting superstar, but don't have the right body to match their idol, i.e. they're too short for basketball. Most learn to live with it and find joy in what they can do. Railing against the realities of physics can only lead to being forever disappointed. Verna. 
And finally, this is from Burnside, a great character who follows us on Twitter. Burnside says, banks really are the last people on earth who are in any position to hector anyone. They should endeavor to remember that the majority of their 39% shareholders are extremely problematic bigots who voted to leave the EU. Yes, indeed. Brexit voters do have a stake in NatWest. And so that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views, email of the week, Liam Halligan. Well, it has to be Noah. So Noah's dad and mum on Noah's behalf, send us an email from Noah with the words mug winner in the subject heading and send us Noah's address. And baby Noah, you too will have your Planet Normal mug. And if you're really lucky, your dad may even be able to find one of those kind of stretchy teats that he can put up on it so you can have your milk out of it but don't drop it on the floor because it will shatter into a thousand pieces i think daddy paul deserves a cup of tea in the planet normal mug for looking after noah every breakfast well done paul i'm so excited we've got a 20 month old listener i can't tell you if you also enjoy planet normal please do leave a rating and a review on apple Podcasts or spotify it does help others to find us so the planet normal family can grow and as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, Cass Ho, Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week, which will be our last episode before our summer break. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.